Welcome to Umer Khan's show, our segment, We the People. And uh, this week, I wanted to discuss something which is a topic which we simply choose to ignore as a society collectively. We try not to discuss this. I'm just going to give you three facts before I share what I am talking about and what I will be talking to my guest about. And that is nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. And this I'm taking from socialsolutions.com. They are a not-for-profit organization, their website. And this number is for 2018. And then also nearly one in four women and one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. And one more, in 15 states, more than 40% of all homicides of women in each state involved intimate partner violence. And I've got a lot more of these, but uh, I just wanted to start with some numbers because most of the times numbers do not lie. And uh, this brings me to my conversation point this time around in We the People is domestic violence. Something we, yes, all of us choose to ignore, whether it happens to someone we know, whether it happens outside our circle and we just become privy to that fact, yet choose to ignore it instead of reporting it, whether in a very subtle fashion or very expressive manner to the correct law enforcement authorities. So having said that, I am going to welcome my guest today, Yasmin, and uh, she has been uh, very courageous to come forward and uh, be willing to share her experience and uh, some some questions I wanted to share with her to see if we can take her side of uh, perspective onto this uh, in this conversation. Welcome, Yasmin. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. So really, I have not walked your shoes. So uh, I am, uh, I just want to understand how and why we choose to ignore these things. And uh, if I may, I would like to just go back, just you telling us something about yourself, your family, your background, uh, just so that we get to know you briefly. Certainly. So um, I actually am born and raised in the United States. Um, my father immigrated back in, I believe, the 60s. You know, we grew up as that first generation of immigrant children. Um, went to school. It was a lot of adjustment. As I look in retrospect, I'm like, wow, things were so different then with parenting than they are now with parenting. But one of the biggest things, um, you know, that it's kind of relating back to today. So I was eldest child of five sisters and that generation didn't know any different. And most people who you will know who are elder children of that generation, we all had arranged marriages. There were very few of us who did not and most of those arranged marriages were from back home. And I'm no different. I am one of those who, you know, I'm not gonna say forced, but yes, forced, because we didn't have any other option um, that would have been without conflict, you know, in the home. So that is, you know, where I um, landed into this situation. Saying that, out of my social circle, 
I am the only one who ended up getting divorced. Out of all of my friends who did go back and get married, all of them are happily married and no marriage is a perfect marriage. You know, there's compromise always on all sides. But out of all of that, you know, we're a good dozen plus girls in that age bracket. It was mine. And so I put out that disclaimer to begin with because I do not want to categorize an entire community as being one way or not being one way because there are always good eggs and bad eggs in every society, every community. and you know, it just depends on the relationship that you are chosen or selected to be in. Right. And you you raise a fair point. Yes, I've seen arranged marriages um, be very successful and fail. And I've seen relationships that were arranged by the bride and groom and being very prosperous over a lifetime. So thank you for uh, adding that. So how long ago did all this happen? Okay, so I was, because I'm the oldest of five um, sisters, I was married at the age of 20. I was in my second year of college. Um, I was married to a gentleman of my Khandan's choosing. And, you know, it goes back to a problem. And this is something I see very vehemently now as an adult. But, you know, we categorize people by qualifications or by standards that are set in this world. We no longer, as a society, are categorizing people by their character, ethics, and qualities. That becomes something that you look at later. What you look at in the beginning is what's their degree? How much are they earning or do they have the potential of earning? What is their family like? And what is the family's reputation? doesn't even matter about the individual. It's like, what is the family's reputation? So it was on the basis of that, that uh, I ended up getting married. I was, I came back. I actually, within the first week, this man said to me, um, you know, you're my green card. And I went back and I told my family and that was red flag number one. Um, but actually that was flag number two. <laughs> the interesting part, oh, this is, I'm going to sit and reflect. I'm going to have lots of memories come through. My first red flag was, you know, I'm this young girl. I'd come from the U.S. We're having this huge event, Nagah, in Pakistan. And I come out to the stage. Honestly, when I was coming from the bridal room, the Nagah room to the stage, if I had not had a swath of cousins and relatives behind me, I probably would have picked up my langa and run away because it was horrifying. But I couldn't, there were too many people behind me, so you just kind of go with the flow and you end up on the stage. I get up on the stage and the first thing that this man says to me, no, good, hello, salam alaikum, you know, oh my God, we're married. He looks at me and I was wearing an emerald green color because emerald is my birthstone. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me, he's like, why do you wear green? I hate that color. Oh, wow. So, you know, in retrospect, wow, that was huge. If you consider the moment and the reaction, that was an indication. Right. But you don't actually feel it because there's so much other stuff going on that it, it kind of gets looked over, right? So then red flag number two was that comment about the green card. Mm -hmm. And I had told my family, but again, it was such the perfect resume that we were going to ignore. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people say to me, oh, well, you were an adult and you were empowered and you were American. You should have just demanded that this marriage end. <laughs> it's never that easy. It's never that easy. 
I did what I thought was correct at that time, which was informing my elders, which is who made this decision to begin with. But in retrospect, didn't do much for me. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll get into those discussions later as to why I think it did. Right. And, and thank you for sharing the red flags because I was going to uh, ask you. So, uh, I mean, it's good we just jumped the gun there. Uh, and it's odd how we elders uh, of our society, not all, few chosen ones, choose yeah. to come back with um, quite a few rebuttals. Uh, but I guess uh, that's a conversation uh, for another day. Yeah. Now, also in terms of uh, the relationship. Okay, so... Went through, <clears throat> So yeah, everything went through. He ended up coming to the US. I was married for a total of 20 years. I had four children. I lost one. Um, so I have three children now. It was turbulent as it should have been, as the red flags had indicated to me. In those 20 years, I left him seven times. But anyone who studies domestic violence knows that cycles are normal. And it takes time for the woman to become strong enough to be able to put her foot down to be able to leave. And every woman is different. Every situation is different. Nobody and no story can be set into a parcel package as to what would have been the correct path. Right. Yes. And uh, it's only the person who's going through that can understand uh, what is going on. So uh, it's it's very wrong to judge anyone in that capacity anyways. Now, also, was there any history that you, you may have become aware of uh, once you were in that relationship uh, before everything happened or anything uh, anyone else had said? I know that afterwards, when the problem comments and things started spiraling because a year into it I tried to break my nikah mm -hmm. but I had a particular family member namely my mother who just wouldn't let it happen and it didn't end up happening because there was you know these are dizzy dynamics there's always politics and dynamics and relationships and this, that, and each family is different. And in this particular situation, I didn't get my rights um, because they thought I was naive and didn't know what I was doing and what they were doing was better. And so um, there was a reason I was telling you all this. Any history that you were aware of? They did investigate a little bit further and there were small issues. Number one, this family was not social. They didn't have friends. Mm -hmm. There was nobody who could truly advocate for what kind of people are they. Yes, on the outside, people could tell, oh, the children are educated. The father worked very hard. The relationship is like this. You know, There were comments that the father and the mother made about each other that when you look back, you're like, wow, why didn't somebody recognize that? Um, you know, and saying, um, like, you know, so this is a big deal for Dissies. The father would say, oh, my wife wanted me to earn money under the table because we had so many children and my, um, my uh, income wasn't enough for the amount of children. But I told her, no, I'm not going to earn haram in that way. So for anyone with a value system, that should have been like, oh, well, wait, what kind of values do they actually have? Right. The dynamic of the relationship between the mother and father, 
you know? Um, and so, but nobody inquired, right? Because we only look at our resumes. There were people who knew them um, because, you know, he was extremely educated. He's an MD um, who did not like him, who did not like his work ethic, did not like how he treated his peers, um, did not hold him in high regard in that standing. Other than that, they could not find someone who could vouch for them, for him or for them. Oh, it must have been so many different reasons. Uh, okay, getting into various events that took place, how do you recall the first time there was physical altercation or um, a physical event that uh, happened? Um, I will never, ever, ever forget that day. It's amazing because um, I'm just going to go forward a little before I go back. Mm -hmm. Going through my divorce towards the end of it, I did therapy and I did intense therapy for six years because they say it takes a third of the amount of years that the woman is married to the abuser for her to truly heal. So I was married 20 years, so it's, six is about right. And I, it wasn't as if I calculated it to be that way, but that was at the point where I knew I had enough strength and that I had recovered enough. But it's amazing because I have short-term memory loss. I have, I cannot remember everything because, and as my counselor had said, that's part of my coping because if I did remember it all, it would be too painful and I would not be able to move past it. But that first incident of physical violence, I will never forget because it happened publicly. Oh, I was, um, I was in school. Oh, so I had, by the time he came to the U S I finished my undergrad. I finished in three years and I had gotten a research job. And I worked in a clinic, uh, a research clinic. My boss was a gay man. And then I worked with a couple of Chinese PhD students and one who was closer to my age. It was um, like a white American male, but he was also a gay man. So technically looking at it from the outside, it was a very secure environment mm -hmm. for an insecure man's wife to be working in, right? right. Yep. So, but he could not. He used to sit outside my, my um, clinic, research clinic area and just be there to observe what was going on, right? He wanted to make sure I wasn't getting loose with any of the men in the clinic. Okay. But the first altercation, the first time he ever hit me was because we were running DNA gels and, you know, we were using pig DNA and, you know, testing because they were working on ovarian cancer research at that time. And one of the gels got messed up and that young gentleman who was a gay man, I made a joke. I'm like, this is a pain in my butt. Like, I can't believe I have to run these gels again because I had used the word butt, mm -hmm. which in an American language, pain in the butt, I mean, you are not being, it's slang. You're yeah. not inferring anything, but because I had made a reference to my physical anatomy, I got hit in the parking lot. Wow. And, and people saw that. I'm sure people saw that. So you, when you, that, when you become a victim, you actually lose awareness of what's going on around you. You get so traumatized. It's almost like you're having a twilight zone moment where everything else fades around, fades away, and you're standing there looking at this individual in shock. 
And after the shock wears off is when the pain and the hurt and the betrayal and the, you know, just the emotions start flooding in. But it starts with shock. You don't comprehend it right away. And how many years uh, were you in your marriage at that time? Um, let me. He had come to the U.S. in September. This was the following January. Oh, it was early onset. Four months into it. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And uh, did you at that point uh, share this with someone in your family? And if yes, yes how did they react? Uh, so, again... My guests from Pakistan who had come for the wedding were still here, right? So I went home. I was irate. I was upset. I mean, it was the first time anything like this had ever happened, of course. And I'm, I can remember the moment clear as day. I was in the kitchen helping my mom. But again, it goes back to my mom and my aunt cook. And I was telling them everything that went down. And I remember looking over at them as I was telling them, and then he hit me. And my mom looks up and looks at my aunt, and my aunt looks up and looks at my mom, and then they both look down. And it was never mentioned again. I'm speechless, <laughs> quite honestly. Yeah. So. Uh, at this point, I do want to ask you, at what point did the males of the house or the family get to know? They knew. They knew. Um, actually, when I tried to break my nikah off, which was prior, my father was with me. He stood with me as in, yes, this guy's not right, and we need to get out of it. One of my uncles had actually had a verbal altercation with my mom saying, no, this guy's not right. You need to get her out of this. And that was before he had hit me, right? So this was while I still had my nikah, but he had not come to the U.S. My mother is of the mindset of old school Pakistan. When you mm -hmm. get married, you don't come back till you're dead. And then second, because she had daughters and this guy's resume was so perfect, she didn't care. She will survive. How was it followed up in terms of uh, subsequent events? So I will tell you, he became emboldened every time something happened and nobody did anything. Once I had had, and so this, the interesting part of this is that I was on birth control through the whole thing. But as Allah's will supersedes mm -hmm. any intervention you can or cannot have in this world, I had three pregnancies in three years. So despite not trying to have children, right? And so those first five years really were very jam-packed, so to speak, you know? Like I would leave and then I would find out I was pregnant and then it would be like, oh my God, how can she leave him when she's pregnant? Okay, let's get so-and-so uncle in the community to intervene and talk to him. And every single time it was a different person. So they did try to have, you know how in old school Desi world, they have like the panjayat, which is like the tribal yes. kind of 
you know? So they tried to build that kind of a setting Mm -hmm. where they would have this uncle or that uncle or this couple and that auntie and intervene and be like, you know, what is going on? See, the thing is, he's an MD. He's not dumb. Yeah. He's actually very smart, but he's also very evil and very wicked. And so these people, abusers is what I mean by that, are master manipulators, master manipulators. And they know their victims. They know what they can do. And it's amazing because they know you better than you know yourself. They know how to play it. They know how to play it. And that's where the concept of the cycle comes in. So at what point were you like, okay, I've had enough. Um, I've, I've left so many times, but this is what has happened now that enough is enough. Okay. What so, happened or what was that point? I had two of those points. This is very interesting. So in 2009, there was stuff that I had found out that was beyond the ability to fathom, which I may be able to go into in further discussions. Today, I don't think I can talk about it because it's a whole different level. Certainly. Um, And so I had found out about that stuff. I was a wreck, a wreck. I did decide to leave. Actually, at that point, my parents were with me. I got some help, got myself the children out all in one day, rented a home in the same city, uh, like maybe what five, seven miles away, because um, I wanted to keep the children in the same school district. Um, so rented a home, moved in there, and initially was, you know, so what happens is when a victim gets out of their environment, there's different stages of what they go through. And I was still in the phase of feeling relief and trying to settle myself enough to be able to look forward to think about what I was going to be doing next. I was just out of that environment. That's what I had been focused on. In that time period, my parents left the country. They're kind of winter flyaways. They don't stay. Uh, we live in the northern part of the U.S. So they they flew away. They were gone out of the country for a while. and. He knew (laughs) it was prime opportunity. And so despite my being in another home, the cycle started again, except this time he was a little creepier. He was breaking into my rental home in the middle of the night. Oh man. He would show up at my bedside. I had an incident of sexual violence. That was the only incident of sexual. Well, Let's take it back. There's sexual domination in these situations, but when you become resigned, it doesn't constitute violence, right? At this particular moment, it was violence. Um, So I experienced that. And I will tell you, I knew he was breaking me. I knew it. I was scared, but he was also saying all the right things yet again yet again after all of that effort to get out of the house and rent another home and this that I got lawyers involved and yada yada I went back 
But this time there were some legal agreements that were put into place because we had some lawyers involved. I kind of never emotionally went back to that marriage ever. So from 2009 to 2011, I focused on getting a degree. I had already had my bachelor's, which was in psychology, but it was a non-functional degree because you have to have a master's or a doctorate in order to have a career in that. Right. So through the course of life, my children had a lot of health issues. I, you know, just a lot. I was almost a nurse without being a nurse. I learned a lot about dietetics. So I decided, you know, my, the demands of my household and this marriage are such that I need a career that I can be at home when the family needs me at home, but it gives me a reprieve when they're at school. And so dietetics was the career that I chose. It's very female friendly in the hours and yada, yada, and it's in healthcare. So I was very focused on becoming a um, dietitian. In 2011, I finished my coursework and our program requires us to have like an internship, which is kind of the equivalent of a medical residency in a hospital. And, you know, I had been a stay at home mom taking care of everything. And my counselor started telling me, oh, you need to just apply to become a tech and you're never going to get matched in a program. You know, there's so many qualified people who you're up against. And, and I'm like, how dare you insult me that way? I did not do all this coursework to become a tech. I am going to think outside of the box. So you've got to remember, I was emotionally detached from my marriage. So moving again was not an issue for me. And so I decided to take a leap of faith and apply to programs out of state. (laughs) And I didn't tell anybody. And lo and behold, the day of the match comes. This is 2011. And my gut was telling me, I was like, I know I have matched out of state. And yes, that is exactly what happened. That was my first step of being emboldened. I told my then husband, I said, I'm leaving. If the kids want to come with me, they can come with me. If they don't want to come with me, they can stay with you. You be their mother and their father for the year. It's only a year. So we are going to figure this out. He just was floored. He took me to my father. He's like, you need to stop your daughter. She's telling me she's leaving the state. And, you know, she didn't even tell me she was applying out of the state. And I, for the first time in my life, looked at my dad straight in the eyes. And I said, you cannot stop me. I'm going to go. So either the children are going with me if they want, or they're not going to go with me and they will stay with him. And the story played out that all three children, despite being in high school, well, the older two were in high school and the younger one was starting middle school, all chose to come with me. They did not want to spend a year with their father because I explained to them, you can stay in the house, you stay in the school, you stay with the community, but I'm not going to be here. Or you come with me, but you're not going to have any of your familiarity, but it'll be a ride. We will all ride together. That was the year between 2011 and 2012 when I moved here. So I was away. I had distance. In 2009, I had rented a home. Yes, I had physically moved out, but he could pick the locks and come in when he wanted to. Here, there were a thousand miles. He had to get on a flight. And he worked. He couldn't do that all the time. And when he was on the phone, I could choose to hang up because I wasn't worried he was going to show up at the door. Um, I literally had a mental breakdown in the middle of my internship. 
And uh, I got into counseling because my program required it of me. I would have probably flunked out if I hadn't. But it was because I was going through all of the emotions of what I had been going through. And I needed it. And I remember two people, very uniquely two people at that time. One, the counselor said to me, your friends are hearing, your family is hearing, I am hearing what you want. How come you're not hearing yourself? That was like a slap in my face. Number two, I have an aunt who had an extremely terrible marriage. I mean, physical violence to a different degree than I had. Um, and she herself is a physician. And so, I mean, it was just awful. She said to me, you are standing on the edge of a really muddy puddle and you want what's on the other side of that puddle, but uh, you don't want to get wet. You don't want to get dirty, but sometimes you just got to go through. And those two things together with the counseling and realizing, you know, that it was kind of, I was having withdrawal from the abusive environment. 2012, I filed for divorce. I did it while living out of state, while I was still in my internship. My attorney didn't file the uh, paperwork until I was close to coming back to uh, my original state because the laws differ between the two states as far as alimony. But then once the case was filed, it was two years of hell. And I tell my friends, he stayed in the house with us for the first year. And then the second year he moved out. But that first year is equivalent to the other 18 as far as the abuse. And at this point, it was no longer physical. It was emotional, psychological, verbal. And that was happening because you had already decided to just part yes. ways and file for divorce. Yes. Yeah. So we, even despite my having filed the divorce, he stayed in the house. He did not leave one year. Then something happened that spawned him to run. And, uh, and then that second year was not as bad, but it was still, I mean, my divorce was horrible. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that uh, in, in such great detail. And I, I really applaud you. Now, was at any point law enforcement involved? Yes, multiple times. And did it just keep going back to the quote unquote panchayat till the divorce filings took place? So, yes. Yeah. Because there came a point where if I had continued to use the law enforcement, he would have not been able to provide. And so I made the choice to use civil methods rather than criminal methods, because it was in my better financial interest. That's very strategic uh, thinking. And there's got to be good advisors that you had at that point who were thinking long term for your yeah. betterment. Yeah, I'm assuming. So the first time the police was called, I was pregnant with my first child. And there was an attorney that had relatively 
uh, he was relatively new to his own practice. He had been an attorney, but he was he had broken off from a group, and so he had gone solo. And my father's accountant, who was a very connected man in our city, suggested this individual. He said, you know, you're going to need an attorney to get him out of jail and all the rest of that. So this guy's new. He wants to go into family law, but, you know, this is a criminal case, but I'm sure he will work with you considering he wants to build his practice. So that was 1994 or five, 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 because my son was born in 95. And so every time I separated, every time I got a restraining order, every time I wanted, and you know, one time I separated, you can separate informally and then you can file for a legal separate. So, I mean, I tried all the different levels of methods, but every time an attorney was needed, it was the same individual that I went, reached out to. And so he himself became a witness to the nature of the marriage. And so he's good. He's very good. He was my advisor. To say you've had a roller coaster would be an understatement. And uh, you've been so um, courageous throughout. How has this impacted you as a person through the evolution that you've had? Okay, so this is going to come off really weird, okay? But when you look at it from an Islamic perspective, nothing happens to you without God's will. And everything that happens to you is of your benefit. Um, You know, they say the matters of a believer are unique in that anything good that happens to him is a goodness. And anything bad that happens to him is also a goodness because he benefits from it, right? So I actually, this is going to sound terribly unique. I'm grateful that all of this happened because I wouldn't be the person who I am today if I hadn't gone and endured and lived through. My vision is just very different than the rest of my world, including my family. But I like who I am today way better than who I was becoming before I met this man. So just putting that into perspective, I come from a very affluent, extremely affluent, extremely educated leader of the U.S. Muslim Pakistani community in America. That my father holds that standing. Our recognition is profound. You wouldn't imagine my story to come out of a home like that unless you know and you witnessed it. And then, you know, the people around are like, what the heck? But, you know, it is what it is. So I see where my family is today and who they are as people and their values and all the rest of that as compared to where I am today and my values and what I'm focused on. I prefer where I'm at, even though it came the hard way. Phenomenal. And uh, yes, I would not have thought about what you just said uh, for this to come out. And in terms of your children, how have uh, they responded to this? Most interestingly, My boys are doing much better. So I have two boys and a daughter. My boys are doing much better than my daughter. They actually recognize their father's discord and his illness because he has mental illness. 
and are able to separate themselves from the chaos and therefore their personalities are more stable and normal let's put it that way my daughter on the other hand even though she can recognize the mental illness cannot separate herself from it because of that unique bond that exists universally between father and daughter um her yearning for a normal father-daughter relationship takes her through the cycles that I left this man because of. And she will acknowledge that, but yet at the same time make decisions that hurt her. So she's definitely still struggling. And therefore the rest of us, which when I say us, I mean myself and my entire family, are struggling to help her normalize. And if I may ask, how old is uh, she and how old are uh, your boys? Um... So my children are 24, 22, and 21. Well, they've got a very good role model to look up to, I can tell you that. <laughs> and you, yes. In terms of, you've already mentioned uh, one of the advisors, other than that gentleman, mm-hmm. anyone else who's held that inspirational platform or uh, been that supportive uh, role throughout? Okay, so that- The aunt who I spoke about Mm -hmm. always said to me, you need to get out of this. Look at my life. You don't want to be me. Because she actually had a divorce agreement with her husband and gave him all this money as an agreement that he would leave her life and leave the children and go away. And he took the money and never left. So he still to this day lives in her home and she's suffering. And, And they're older now. Like this is our parents generation right and she she has all along said to me look at my life and learn from my life you need to you need to just get away so she was one definitely and of course as I matured I started realizing her wisdom along the way and then second which was more towards I would say the last eight years of my marriage Uh, The city where I did my internship, uh, there is a family who was part of that initial immigrant surge of uh, people who came to the U.S. with my parents. So they were all in the same city together. And then this family happened to move to the, the city where I ended up doing my internship. So that auntie was an only daughter of elite Pakistan, right? She was empowered from day one. And her upbringing was not conservative by any means. And so she is in a direct dichotomy of the value system and parenting technique of my own parents. And I found with time, she became a source of strength for me. And it was through years that I started to realize no, as a woman, I have power. I have rights. I can do things. I can make decisions. But that was not the parenting technique that I was raised with. Seeing things over the course of time, year over year, you start thinking that this is the only way of living life. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that point up also. Now, if you were to you mentioned a few things. I'm still going to ask you, if you were to mm-hmm. go back 
and mm -hmm. tell your 20 year old ago self, what would be the one thing you would tell? So this is okay. So it's like two sides of the same coin. The advice that I would give myself, which I will relay would mean that I wouldn't have had my children, but I love my children and they're a blessing, even though they're a trial because, oh my goodness, once you have them, you can't give them back. <laughs> you know, they are my children and I do love them. Right. But if I had given myself the advice, it would have been to not stay. And primarily for one reason, which I still struggle with. It is my biggest challenge. And this is the one thing in me that is not still healed. And that would be the destruction of my self-esteem and self-image. My self-worth, my self-value and my self-respect. That doesn't that also come from the part of society you're in, uh, your support system or your so-called support system, mm. the times you're living in. So how do mm -hmm. you challenge that? How do you muster up the courage to try to break free of that? It's not easy. And I will tell you one of the things that was extremely enlightening for me through the course of my therapy was one day my counselor said to me, because I would always complain about the way my parents and my mother were reacting as compared to what was going on with my soon-to-be ex, you know, and this is happening with him and this is happening with them and blah, blah, blah. And she said to me one day, the reason you endured this marriage for as long as you did is because it comes from the same family of values and mindset as your mom. This was normal for you. So I may have an ex, but you don't ex your mother. At least you yeah. don't in Islam, right? True. Yeah. But I've had to do a lot of research and a lot of study and a lot of sitting and questioning scholars as to what the rights of parents are upon children and what the rights of children are upon the parents. And I will tell you that research has led me to realize how twisted and sick our Desi culture is and how manipulated because what is truly Islam is not what our culture teaches us. Thank you for adding that because I was going to do that at no point in any of my conversations. I want to even sound like our culture, Pakistani culture comes from Islam. That no. is absolutely not the case. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And actually, anyone who can be impartial enough to study and research will make that conclusion on themselves. But the blind followers will not. Why is it that we do not, or even if we do classify domestic violence individuals who, who are abusers as mental health patients, and why do we not pay attention to that? even as a society? So between the two, if you speak about Pakistan, that's one category. And if you speak about America, there's another category. Because in America, there is at least awareness of acknowledgement of the fact that those people are sick. 
in Pakistan, they still don't acknowledge it. And so there's a lot of victim shaming and victim blaming. The patriarchy there does not allow the woman any rights. It doesn't allow her to voice herself. And the suppression is, oh my God, I just thank God that if I had to endure what I had to endure, it was that my parents moved out of that country and were here, right? Um, I think in the US, the conversation is starting. You right here, right now, today, are helping to start that conversation. And the more that that conversation becomes the norm, the more things will change. But no change in culture, no change in society ever happened without huge ripples. But they start from tiny waves. True. Out of all this that we have spoken about today, people who end up listening to our conversation, and I'm hoping someone who needs to listen to this conversation to muster up that courage, what would you want to share with them? So I'm on a lot of platforms, both internationally and intranationally, of women supporting women, right? Soul sisters, different, just different names of different platforms, right? One thing, okay, so let's go down this. Number one is, it's not your fault. And there's nothing wrong with you. There's a problem with the other person, but the victim is always made to believe there's something wrong with her. Or him, okay, let's just say that. There's plenty where it's in reverse. And that conversation is dead if we think talking about women as victims is not being talked about enough, right? The conversation where men are victims, is it, it doesn't exist, right? Um, so it's not the victim's fault. Number two is you do this when you're ready to do this, not when the world around you is telling you you have to be ready to do this. You're the one who lives with the consequences. You're the one who lives through the actual events. But the strength has to come from within. And then number three is do not fear. Yes, it is horrifyingly scary. I gained so much weight in my divorce. I gained so much weight because your emotions and your hormones are out of control. It is terribly scary. But you will be hard-pressed to find a woman who went through it who will say, I did not. I wish I had not. I've literally said it to people going through divorce. I'm like, just go through it. There will come a day where you'll be grateful that you endured. And then those days comes and those girls are like, you know what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, I went through it too. But it hurts. It's hard. It sucks. I can't even imagine. So thank you. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to share this, to be able to uh, attend to my questions. I appreciate that part and uh, be open in sharing whatever details you were able to. And I respect that because we did not walk your shoes. And we thank you for doing it. And hopefully, God willing, inshallah, 
someone somewhere out there will just feel a little better and start to think of the conversation that will help her have her life back or him or him either way. Absolutely. Inshallah. Thank you very much, Yasmin. It was my pleasure speaking with you and you have a, a very good day. Thank you. And same for you. All right, listeners. My conversation with Yasmin about domestic violence, how it has evolved her personality over the course of years. And it's just not a matter of one day, one incident, uh, one individual. It's a matter of family. It's a matter of families. It's actually a matter of culture, not religion, but culture. And that is where we need to drive those changes by our actions. That's all I'm going to say. We the people, Umar Khan Show, love to have some feedback. Please do let me know. Thank you, and have a very good day, guys.